every single thing is designed to create an artificial vacuum in our sense of worthiness in order to be able to propagate this consumerist virus. And this is just one example, right, to illustrate like the connection between the health of the individual and the health of the culture. When we've come to the environment, it's pretty obvious, right? We're not drinking water that is clean. It's very difficult to be healthy. But more often than not, because of the highly focused obsession on the individual as the only arena in which transformation and growth can happen, we tend to ignore that the individual is actually in constant dialogue with community, with society, with culture, with environment. And a big part of what I do through Healing from Healing is trying to actually not only visibilize, but create a visceral experience for people to understand, right? Hey, nobody can be fully happy and healthy unless the structures that we inhabit are happy and healthy, unless everybody else is to some degree happy and healthy, because otherwise it's just an endless vortex of self-absorption that is not really providing answers, but like really just diminishing from our capacity to actually act in the world. So to answer your first question, that is the measure. At some point, each person has to be able to say, hey, enough with the self-absorption, enough with the endless pursuit for my own personal healing and my own personal happiness in my own personal Now it's time for me to actually look out and see what is it in my immediate surrounding? What is it in my corner of the world that I can actually work actively to make a little bit better for everybody else, right? And this is kind of like a very basic insight that every spiritual tradition that is worth anything will have as a leading principle. If you really want to be happy and healthy, you need to be of service to something greater than yourself, which is, seems to be like one of the things that oftentimes are missed in kind of like this neoliberal healing culture vibe. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield, welcoming you to episode 211 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I don't have to tell you that these are weird times. I mean, this is really just a perfect episode to be releasing on Halloween when the veil between worlds is thin. Because this conversation about the thinning veil between the physical and the virtual, the organic and the machinic, the self and the cosmos, may be counted among the deepest conversations I've had on this show. Adam Aronovich is a singular intellect, a fascinating person, someone who brings as much heart to his rending analyses of culture as he does his head. So I invite you to do the same and get your gut involved. Be a full-bodied person listening to this episode. You'll be better for it. We go deep and you need all your resources to go this deep. But before we do... I want to give my profound thanks to everyone who has been supporting this show on Patreon or Substack, everyone who has been buying my artwork, my music. I spent an insane amount at the grocery store today, and I know you did too. And here we are, keeping it together, together. I'd like to give a special shout to Nick Kahn, Elizabeth Kennedy, Ian Benoit, Hopa Rasali, Bobby Levinsky for being the latest to enter 
re-enter up or re-up. I hope y'all like me giving shouts, because I like giving shouts. This is a community enterprise. <laughs> Let's make it so. Before we begin, is there anything you want to you specifically want to focus on today, or do we just wander around like two fools in a wood? What is your game plan? Do you have like a general idea of where you want to go? Yeah, I do. So in 2017, I wrote a science fiction short called An Oral History of the End of Reality about deep fakes and yeah. about about what they were gonna do to society when Nobody could tell what the hell was going on anymore. Yeah. And I've just really appreciated the stuff that you've been sharing to Instagram recently. Like you're, I think in my eyes, you are one of the more like important and tuned in and hilarious cultural anthropologists of the digital era that I'm aware of right now. And I don't know, there's, there is this, it's been interesting because what seems like an account that started as just a way of making fun of your friends, basically, <laughs> has become this juggernaut of the curation of oddities and really like pointed reflection about how strange people's strategies for adapting to this world have become. And so that's, that's, a, that's what a, I a great way of putting on. it. Yeah. So that's where I'd like to, to go with this. Maybe like, where we would start is by just talking a bit about your personal history and you know what like who you are and got you in like invested in this culture and its its scenes and we can take it from there sure great sounds good that's that sounds like a great story i would like if you want to send it my way i would be happy to read it i will yeah 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 for sure i'll post it in the notes to this call also but great. yeah so yeah, so tell me a little bit about your backstory then. Yeah, my backstory. I think it's hard to pick where to start, but I imagine as many stories in our particular circle start, I did a bunch of mushrooms that kind of like led me through, this is my early 20s. I, at some point in my early 20s, I got acquainted with psychedelic experiences and obviously I came to experience what I now term an ontoepistemic reenchantment. Yeah, like the that capacity that psychedelics have to really elicit a deep questioning of the assumptions that we have about what the world is, how we acquire information about the world, what channels are available to us in order to make sense of the world and so on and so forth. What led me to get pretty standard in trying out different substances, experiencing a whole lot of ego inflation, going deep into a messianic stage somewhere around my mid-late 20s, where now, now I see it all the time. <laughs> Almost everybody who gets into a rabbit hole of awareness, development, self-development, psychedelics and so on and so forth, is prone to get into kind of that stage of messianic ego inflation where... And this, for me, speaking of my own experience, like I started like really thinking that I had answers to the problems of the world and that I had to educate and pass it on to everybody else. I got really deep into conspiracy rabbit holes for a few years there, like spending a lot of time on YouTube 
watching a lot of shit on every conceivable conspiracy link topic. I think nowadays, in the last three or four years, there has been a lot of awareness about this marriage, like unholy alliance between conspiracy culture and Western neoliberal spirituality or new age spirituality. There's a whole podcast that came to light in the last few years. A lot of people are realizing that actually this is a thing and it's a thing that has been going on for, for a long time. And that was exactly like the scene that I was in for a very long time, right? Like very deep into conspiracy epistemics. And by the way, I think this is something that probably worth like just making a distinction because oftentimes when people criticize conspiracy theories, it's like a tricky territory. Like I'm not necessarily saying, ne- I'm never saying conspiracies, conspiracies don't exist or ne- every person that kind of believes in conspiracies is like a misguided, deluded, whatever. But actually what I talk about is conspiracy epistemics, right? Which is like a lens of making sense of the world and historical events and everything that happens exclusively through the lens of established conspiracy culture which is something that is very common. Taking away the complexity and the nuance of what happens and just exclusively always describing things that happen to nefarious, shadowy players, puppeteering, whatever happens. It's very common, right? Deep into the conspiritual vibe for many years and trying to figure out how to make sense of this world that I was living in. Making the story short, just to bring it down to the present days, I before... The pandemic, I was spending, I spent almost four and a half, almost five years in the Peruvian Amazon rainforest. I was doing my doctoral field work and also working at the same time in an ayahuasca retreat center, one of the better known, bigger names in the ayahuasca world. You know, doing a couple of research collaboration with two well-established research groups in the psychedelic scene and also doing, basically doing the field work for my own doctoral dissertation. And part of that work was interviewing people after they had their ayahuasca workshops. So I got to talk, other than just other than facilitating the retreats themselves, which of course is a massive amount of experience, but like actually interviewing probably 200, 250 people after they finished their workshop and asking them what was it about the ayahuasca retreat that was particularly beneficial or helpful for them. I got to understand that these narratives, these stories, these discourses that are very much rooted in conspirituality, that are very much rooted on this new agey, neoliberal spirituality meets conspiracy culture, extremely widespread. And oftentimes, like the first most important framework through which people make sense of their experiences and the world at large. It's not exclusively one of the main ones, at least, right? Like also like therapeutic culture and trauma reductionism and all sorts of different phenomena that I highlight through the work that I do at the page. And there was a moment, which for me, I think was a a watershed moment during the early days of the pandemic where things just went haywire. And I think that that, this was like like a watershed moment for a lot of people in our circles were like the, I guess, like the pressure and the tension of a rapidly changing world and like, like a global event that was very difficult to make sense of, like really brought out like all the conspiritual epistemics in full force. And I saw like people that I deeply cared about, people that were friends, people that were acquaintances, colleagues of mine, like going deeper and deeper and deeper into conspiracy epistemics as a primary lens through which they saw everything completely bypassing nuance and complexity and all sorts of different input that might have been useful as opposed to just like that particular conspiritual 
framework. And that's not just an abstract thing for me because I have been that person in the past. I know very well what that means, like looking at the world through that lens, being so deep into the conspiritual rabbit hole that it's very difficult to see the world in a different way. And in this particular instance, as the pandemic hit, like this touched me very deeply in terms of like really close friend, like really first degree family members that started, right? Like going into these things. And of course, we all, we know how these things unfolded, like with Trump getting into the QAnon wagon and like the insurrection in the US and just like a transcending, in a sense, like breaking the fourth wall, as it, as it were, and like this thing escaping the fringes of like conspiracy, spiritual culture, and like really reaching the mainstream in a really magnificent, overwhelming way. And now it's like a meme, right? Like boomers, <laughs> like make fun of boomers on Facebook for believing everything that they see posted on Facebook. But it's like the thing, like it transcended the pandemic like was a breaking, like a watershed moment where all of this conspiracy culture, new age conspiritual culture escaped the confines of a very specific subculture and became really mainstream in, in a very significant way. So that was like the moment where I felt it was necessary to start gathering these experiences, contextualizing them in some sort of like relatively solid critique, like drawing really from established sociological, anthropological, psychological theory, not only talking out of my ass, and maybe helping to some extent people navigate times of chaos and extreme uncertainty in a way that perhaps isn't as destructive and sociopathical as full-on conspiratorial capture. And Healing from Healing was born. The real, the most honest answer that I have when people ask me, like, what is the origin of Healing from Healing? Is It really was a way for me to process my own emotions, I guess, to project my own shadow into a wider movement. My own frustration, my own anger, my own disenchantment with new age spirituality and the psychedelic world as a subset of the wider what I term healing culture. So healing culture is the analytic framework that I use to talk about this confluence of many things, including psychedelics, but also conspiracy culture, new age spirituality, therapy culture, the increasing pathologization and medicalization of human experiences and all of the things that entails. But yeah, it's, it's like just a way to vent my own frustrations and my own <laughs> anger. Uh, and surprising, surprisingly for me, it, it just caught on like very quickly like people were very quick to relate to it and it just grew very fast it's like a constant it's a constant point of reflection for me because i never expected it to become what it has become now not that it's a huge thing nowadays it's not a very old project it's a year and a half old maybe 18 months with significant pauses in between where i just didn't have the capacity to engage with it but yeah, it has good engagement it has a good reach people like it and I think there's both, like a lot of people that like really like it and resonate with it, and like a lot of people that really hate it and think it like it's a or horrible thing. And I get both perspectives. Like I don't have, I don't have it figured out. I think the most honest thing that I can say is that I don't really have a plan for it. It's just it keeps unfolding in a particular way. I, in the beginning, it was just me posting a funny meme and then elaborating on a caption about a topic that I thought would be interesting and then as time went by it evolved into more of a crowdsourcing enterprise where just because it grew so much and people were contacting me so much i get probably 100 200 
messages and emails and DMs every day. It's very difficult for me to keep track of these things. But most of these things are content, right? That people send my way because they think it would be appropriate for some sort of topic, for some sort of carousel. So I have to sort through and sift through all of the things that people send me to. Also, like, just like the temperature, right? Of what is it that people are interested in? What are the things that people want to see featured? What are the things that people want to talk about? What are the things that people want to have conversations about? And then putting that out there. Yeah, it's evolving very fast from just a one person's take on different things towards a much more crowdsourced compilation of things that people in the sphere find useful. One of the things that oftentimes people might assume when they're new just jumping into the page is that I might be just an external person looking in and hating on this culture, like just criticizing something that I don't fully understand. But I think the vast majority of the people that follow that page and engage with it on a day-to-day basis are actually people that are very deep within these communities, right? It's not it's not the kind of thing that is just like external voyeurists looking, peeping into something that they don't fully understand. But actually, this is a very deep, intimate, visceral endeavor that comes from the vowels of healing culture and manifests in that way. I think I'm, I've been kind of speaking for a long time, so I'm just going to shut up for a moment and recalibrate. No, that's great. great. I have a lot of questions or like prompts based on everything yeah. you just said. And we can choose your own adventure here. but. We'll get to both of these in whatever order you want. The first is a question about, like, I love just the context of healing from healing as somebody who I haven't spent nearly as much time in an ayahuasca circle as you have. But one of the things that became very swiftly apparent to me was that when I did a check, I cased the room and it seemed like a lot of the folks that were involved in this space were, I would say, chronic rather than acute in this, in that they had come to identify as people that were doing really the work that would never end. That like when you see yourself as healing, not only your own trauma, but like the trauma of every generation that has come before you. (laughs) And I have been that very weekend in 2014, I'm thinking back on specifically, was a weekend in which I felt in ceremony as though I could feel the pain of every mother who had ever sent a child off to die in war. And, you know, that I... Like I've had, I had an experience at the MAPS conference, unrelated to ayahuasca, but I had an experience at the MAPS conference this year where I felt like I was connecting to the trauma that the dinosaurs experienced when they died from the meteor. And that that was like unprocessed trauma that was still living in the body of this planet. And it's like when you're dealing with stuff that is like so immense and so impossible for what happens is that people don't, people don't get on with their lives, right? Like they're like sucked into this vortex where the question, you really have to confront the question of when is it enough? Like how much can you take on as a person and what is appropriate? And I think that this kind of relates to other problems. This is the tie-in I want to make to the other question here, which is in your case, that that question might be phrased as like, when did you decide that enough was enough for you? And how did you get out of this the space that you were talking about yourself being in? And then, but the other piece is that I spend a lot of time lately investigating scaling laws, the way that 
things, the properties and the dynamics of things change as the scale at which they occur is as, as we zoom out or zoom in. And like the way, like the work that Jeffrey West did on how like a, with Brian Enquist and Jim Brown on how mouse and an elephant have the same number of heartbeats. Their lives are a very different lengths, but they both have about 1.5 billion heartbeats over the course of their lives. And the fact that a whale is so much, or an elephant is so much larger means that gets proportionately more cancer. It, it has to sleep less. There are these properties that change. And the economy is one of these things that like, as the economy grows, it becomes more and more like more and more intricate and difficult to understand. And so we're living in, by living online, we're living in a media ecology that is so much bigger than the horizon within which we were required to process information and understand social relationships and make sense of things for mo- like the entire history of human species. And there have this moment similar to previous moments. I've talked a lot about the way that the internet is causing an epistemic crisis in a way that's very similar to the printing press or yeah. earlier information. Te- and Jamie Stantonian's yeah. essay, okay. Apocalyptic Cults, and in the 30 Years War is something I bring up a lot on the show. I'll link to in the show notes. I'll link to here for you also in the chat. But he, let's see, what, what, I, what I think about with all of this stuff is that, so when we're having trouble making sense of what is real or what is merely an illusion, it's a kind of a related question to how can one person ever expect to process these profound, insane fathomless things like mass extinctions or like the epigenetic trauma of your entire ethnicity or whatever. And we end up in these sort of wormholes where we can't, like, we don't know how to live online with one another. And so this is the other piece, right? Which is that you spend a lot of time recently on the issue of NPCs or non-player characters. And there is something about, maybe it's going to take Maybe we need to start with some exposition into the way that you think about trauma in order to understand this. But one of the characteristics of trauma is dissociation. And one of the characteristics of living in the digital era is that we are, you know, in a kind of a Marxist way, alienated from the means of production, from the way that facts are constructed, from yeah. the, the way that narratives are formed, from one another, from the people we meet online. And so there's this weird phenomenon going on now that the synthesis of artificial look like photorealistic media or like audio or video stuff is concerned that people are encountering other people online and they're not just dehumanizing them in the way that we were grown up used to people being dehumanized. They're dehumanizing them in the sense that they don't even believe that they're actual human beings, that they don't believe that they, they think that this is, this person is a video game, like a a sprite. Yeah, Yeah. This is, this is a, piece of software that they're interacting with rather than a human being. And one of the weirdest things about it is that the response to this phenomenon is that people are stepping into this character. William Irwin Thompson, the historian, has this great essay called The Borg or Borges that I'll I'll link to you here, in which he talks about, he says right here in the beginning of this essay, it is a paradox of the work of artificial intelligence that in order to grant consciousness to machines, the engineers first labor to subtract it from humans as they work to foist upon philosophers a caricature of consciousness in the digital switches of weights and gates and neural nets. 
as the mm-hmm. character c- caricature goes into public circulation with the help of the media, it becomes an accessible counter- acceptable counterfeit currency, and the humanistic philosopher of mind soon finds himself replaced by the robotics scientist. So there is this this weird phenomenon that a lot of people have observed in the digital era, where our machines are becoming more and more lifelike, and our human nature is being recognized. Yuval Harari has talked about this a lot as well in the the emergent religion of Silicon Valley, where the human, the the modern liberal human being is no longer a sort of atomic agent self-authoring their own destiny, a rational actor, but is a bundle of evolutionary algorithms that can be controlled as the terminal unit of social engineering, like we saw in the 2016 election with Cambridge Analytica. People are basically, people are being treated as robots and robots are being treated as people and people are treating each other as robots. And yeah. so the, the extreme here that I, is in this fantastic documentary by Rodney Asher called A Glitch in the Matrix, where he examines the cultural impact of the film, The Matrix, as you mentioned a moment ago, and the way that a lot of the mass shootings that we're seeing, which are of course connected to these kind of conspiritual phenomena, uh, these these sort of viral memes that are circulating around that that like authors like Doug Rushkoff have talked about fractal noia as a way like people are desperate to make sense of things and so they cling yeah. to these consilient all embracing narratives, but like the absolute conspiritual narrative in some respects is solipsism. It is the notion that you're the only real person yeah. in the room. And so yeah. in Rodney Asher's documentary, you hear this thing about how so many of the mass shootings or just other violent criminal acts in the last 20 years have been by people who were traumatized and ended up believing that they could inflict violence on other people with no consequences yeah. because there's no impunity because there's no one to punish them because none of these people are real. And so, yeah, so that's a lot to chew on, but take as much time as you want to sift your way through that and some kind of walk us through all of that and how you understand these things and why you see the NPC phenomenon is so important, how you relate it to trauma, like how you've made sense of these things in your own life. But yeah. Yeah, man. yeah, great. So <laughs> let me see if I can run a common thread amongst all of those things because there were many different topics. But yeah, like we're talking about something that in the philosophy of mind is called cognitive closure, right? Which is this idea that in the same way that we don't expect dogs to do calculus and we don't expect cats to speak four languages, then there there really isn't anything encoded within humanity that says that we should be and must be able to comprehend the ultimate secrets of the universe. So the cognitive closure argument says that perhaps there is a limit to how much we can make sense of the deeper mysteries. And when it comes to metaphysics, when it comes to ontology, when it comes to like the things that keep <laughs> philosophers up at night, like we tend to assume that as humans, it's just a matter of finding the right answer or thinking about something enough for some sort of dialectical process where we bounce back and forth between opposing theories and then eventually we will come up to the ultimate answer. But in reality, like the cognitive closure component, of it. maybe humans, maybe our nervous system is just not developed enough to be able to provide us with answers to these ultimate mysteries of existence. Right? And I think that's something that's very difficult for people to accept. It's very difficult for a lot of us to say, hey, you know what, maybe the mystery has value for the sake of being mysterious. We are having to obsess other 
having certainty, which is the second part of it, right? Like one of the reasons I think why we're living in such chaotic times from an epistemic perspective, because I guess as entropy accelerates, to some extent, civilization collapses and we're like living in like really turbulent times when it comes to social structures and the seemingly irreversible demise of our life support systems when it comes to the environment that sustains us. I think it's very important for people to be able to have certainty about things, even if that means gravitating towards really absurd and oftentimes destructive things. I think you started by asking about the the matter of like when enough healing is enough healing or when doing something enough is enough. And this is something that is, is really at the basis in many ways of the things that I do. It has been at the basis of the classes that I teach and the communications that I put out. And when I do this day, I'm still working with retreat centers in all sorts of different capacities. Like right now, I do work for a place here in Mexico where I direct the therapeutic and integration part of it. And I teach classes. And one of the things that I often always say to the groups, I mean, this, the baseline of the communications that I put out for the groups is something along the lines of there is a limit to how much personal, individual healing and growth we can do before that becomes actually counterproductive and oftentimes pathological, right? And that is something that I have seen from my personal experience and also lived in my personal experience, but mostly seen in a very significant way. When Again, living in the Amazon rainforest, being in a center that specializes in ayahuasca retreats, and I'm not, I'm not speaking so much to the people that actually come to the retreats and they spend two weeks or 10 days drinking ayahuasca, doing the thing. But actually the people that are more embedded within this lifestyle, people that work in places like this, people that make their own identity and life about that particular thing, right? And you hear like really absurd things like, oh, like I drank ayahuasca 400 times. And I'm like, really? I don't really see, I wouldn't say that to the person. From my knowledge of you, I don't really think that has made you a much better person or the kind of benefit that you might think. Actually, some of the, biggest assholes that i've met in my life or like kind of some of those people right they like really attached to their identity as doing the work doing the work is oftentimes i say doing the work is like the new moral imperative for the awakened classes right like we have to do the work like we have to awaken right this kind of like never-ending search for the awakening for the transcendental thing that is gonna finally fully heal me fully yeah, people get really stuck in that rabbit hole of there's, you know, like oftentimes when we talk about healing, when we talk about personal growth and like drawing back to the roots of kind of like present healing culture, which draws a lot from near spirituality, but also the human potential movement, large awareness groups such as Landmark and so on and so forth that kind of like, like really have created this idea that life is an onion, right? And what life should be, a life lived, a life of purpose, a life of awareness, a life of consciousness is a constant pursuit for peeling the layers of that onion in this endless pursuit to getting to that juicy center that is never actually reached because there's always going to be more layers to peel from that onion. And people really, people really, I have in my life been in that 
loop for a few years, right? Where like the next, when is the next ceremony? Where is the next group sharing? Where is the next activity? Where is the next workshop? Where is the next training that I'm going to do? Where is the next thing that I'm going to do that's going to finally put me over the line in this particular thing and show me all the things that happened to me when I was a child that made me the way that I do, right? Like all the kind of like this trauma reductionism that is very prominent in healing culture nowadays and in the medicine spaces in particular, right? Like, like Peter Levine, Gabor Matt, Bessel van der Kolk flavored way of like every adult dysfunction is exclusively the result of bad things that happened to us when we were children. And that's a black hole that you can never gravitate out of if you really get sucked into it, right? Because again, like the layers of the onion are endless. So going back to what orientation I think would be more useful, and this is something that I communicate to all my groups and have done so for many years, like... It is important to have the capacity for introspection. I think it's one of the great gifts of psychedelics in particular, but also to different spiritual technologies or psychological technologies or psycho-spiritual approaches in, in general, is that they do allow us to look at ourselves through a magnifying lens from a somewhat detached perspective where we can actually contemplate who we are and why we are the way that we are in a way that is not necessarily available or accessible to us in the day-to-day. Psychedelics are many things, but one of the things that they are also, right, like Stanislav Grof used to call them, or still calls them, non-specific amplifiers, right? Like they amplify whatever is there so we can actually have a good look and a good assessment of what is it. So yeah, they are great for that. And I think it's very commendable and a great thing for people to be able to do that. Hey, like, I want to know myself better, right? Like the... Oracle at Delphi, right, in ancient Greece. Like, notice Auton, know thyself, right? Know yourself, I think, is one of the guiding forces that every person that wants to seek knowledge, wants to seek awareness, wants to seek answers, want to know themselves better. And psychedelics, I think, are one of the most potent, important, beautiful things that we have for the pursuit of self-knowledge. But also, like, we're constantly interacting with the cultural narratives, and the stories that are dominant, the things that are in the ether, right? It's like the morphogenic field of how we orient ourselves in making sense of those experiences. And inevitably, right, like those things are not separated from the cultural zeitgeist in general of our dominant cultures, the socioeconomic system. One of the dominant features of modernity, right, is like this neoliberal hyper-focus on the self, the individual as the main unit of agency, of intentionality, of analysis, right? Like Margaret Thatcher, very famously back in the early days of neoliberal policy, right? Like she said something along the lines of society is an abstraction, right? Like the only thing that exists is the individual and everything else is just an abstraction. By the way, Amazonian ontologies kind of take that into and put that on their head, right? Like the core of Amazonian ontologies is precisely the opposite. So individuals are an abstraction. The only thing that exists is relationships. Right? The only thing that exists is that endless network of interdependent relationships in which individuals are just nodes, but don't fully exist outside of that network of interdependent relationships. But anyway, going back to the thing, the stories that we tell about who we are, what is our place in the world, what are psychedelics for, what is healing about, what is growth about, are always going to be dominated by the ruling ideas, ruling stories, the, 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 the narratives that we tell each other about what these things are. And you can see that. You can go to any, I'm not going to say any, but you can go to the web pages, for example, of any psychedelic retreat. 
of any practitioner that is offering healing modalities in under kind of like the umbrella of the modern narratives. And they would say the primary purpose of psychedelics is to help you work through your childhood trauma. Well, the primary purpose of psychedelics is to help you, an individual, right, heal the things that happen in your life, grow those. There's very rarely really any uh, address of that embeddedness, that inter dependence like the fact that individuals are constantly in dialogue with community with society with culture with environment but like that kind of like larger more expanded embodiment is actually becoming more known or at least more experienced nowadays that actually like what embodiment means is not just encapsulated in my particular body but actually embodiment in a territorialized way like embodiment in a group of community in a embodied in, like, in the land that I'm steward of, and so on and so forth. So the stories that we have today, just bringing that back, the stories that we have today are stories that very much prime for self-absorption. They very much prime for self-indulgence. They very much prime, not using this word very lightly, but they very much prime for a certain degree of narcissism if we don't keep those impulses in check. Because if we don't, then what ends up happening is exactly what you described. And again, there's always going to be more layers of the onion to peel. There's always going to be another trauma to heal from. There's always going to be another thing that I need to heal from. There's always going to be another thing that I need to grow into. And then the spiritual marketplace is an endless, offers an endless array of opportunities for people to remain stuck in that vortex forever and ever. There's always going to be another workshop. There's always going to be another ceremony. There's always going to be another everything, right? And yes, over time, and this is something that I experienced in myself and others, over time, if people are not able to escape the gravitational pull of that neoliberal, hyper-individualistic narrative, then it will derive in a certain degree of narcissistic experiences, in a certain degree of self-absorption, in a certain degree of detachment, right, from that connectedness between the individual and the world at large. And it becomes pathological. It becomes like really something that unfortunately it's very common and also unfortunately it's very difficult to escape from because once a person is like stuck in that self-absorbed pseudo narcissistic experience of themselves in relation to the world then any criticism any reflection tends to be weaponized right oh you're just saying that to me because you haven't done your own work right you're just saying that because you're projecting on me your own insecurities or you're projecting on me your own lack of healing. You're project- but so we weaponize a lot of kind of psychological and psychiatric vernacular. This is what pop psychology is, right? Pop psychology, one of the main components of healing culture, right? actually one of, the, one of the pillars upon which healing culture stands is pop psychology, which is not only the reduction of useful concepts in clinical practice and theory, into kind of like, or I mean, memes is a good word, like reducing them into memes or reducing them into kind of like empty, catchy buzzwords that are, that are useful for TikTok engagement, but not very useful for actually understanding oneself better, right? But also the weaponizing of, of those concepts, right? Like weaponizing things nowadays, like every person you don't like is a narcissist, which is why I said before, I'm not using this word lightly. It's a tricky word to use in any context because it's highly weaponized, right? All of my exes are narcissists because they didn't love me the way that I wanted to be loved. This person that hurt me is not only a selfish asshole, which by the way, plenty of people are selfish assholes. That doesn't mean that they're narcissists. Right, so we're weaponizing a lot of this kind of psychological vernacular, and then that gets used as a way to deflect any criticism when we get like really deep into. This is one of the features that is most difficult to deal with in environments like this one. The place that I work with had a culture 
that had institutionalized like, like this weaponized vernacular to deflect any possible criticism of structural things that were real. But anything that you would say, hey, maybe these things can be better or maybe, no, that's just, that's just you because you haven't done your work because you haven't dieted enough because you haven't done enough medicine because you haven't like really worked through your shadows, right? And this is unfortunately one of the most annoying and common deflections kind of like in the medicine world, in the psychedelic scene, in the new age spiritual <laughs> scene at large, right? It's like anything will be reflected back at you like it's your problem because other people are never at fault. Structures are always healthy. Hyper-individualism on steroids, like anything that you see that you might be judging or critical of is just a reflection of your own lack of wholeness right that's just something that points out to where you need to heal as an individual and yeah sometimes it's true but of more often than not actually it's just like an easy cope out of like really addressing structural issues so the thing that i would say to the people that i work with just bringing some closure to that long rant yeah it's important to keep an eye maybe an eye and a half inwards as we do this work right like introspection is important contemplation like increasing our capacity to be honest with ourselves about our own things where we still need to grow. All those things are great, but maybe one eye, maybe one and a half eyes, but also a half eye outwards, right? That we're also at the same time as we're healing and growing and doing the things that we need to do in order to be better people, right? That we're not losing track that actually the vast majority of human suffering comes from structural violence, right? From structures not ideal for humans to thrive in. Whether it's economic inequality or in the US, I think nowadays you guys are having like a moment of reckoning with all sorts of different things that is very polarizing in terms of not only class, like race and privilege and all of those things. And this is a whole other kettle of fish that maybe we don't want to get into. But right, like this idea that actually the health of individuals is intrinsically connected to the health of a community, to the health of a society, to the health of a culture. One of the most common things that people come to me with when I work with people is like, hey, like I really want to feel better about myself. I want I don't like my, I lack self-confidence. Like I don't feel that I'm good enough. This is like an ubiquitous, very universal experience. In the and then you start to think like, why is it that a lot of people in the West have this issue with not feeling that they're good enough, that they're not successful enough, that their imposter, like imposter syndrome is rampant everywhere. Like everybody is lacking self-love. Everybody is lacking self-confidence. Like, where is this coming from? But then, like, you, every time that I come to the U.S., right, like, I, I come very often. My, my wife is American. And sometimes walking on this, and it is not only in the U.S., it's just like a more extreme example. This is all over the world nowadays. But it's very difficult to walk in the streets of any major American city without being bombarded with messaging a thousand times a minute, whether it's from billboards or the radio or television or fucking phones, like every single advertisement that we receive is basically designed to do one thing, which is to undermine our sense of wholeness because that's how consumerism operates, right? You can't sell shit that people don't want or need to people that are feeling secure, confident, whole, right? Satisfied, content. Like the first task of consumerism is to chip away at people's sense of wholeness. So you can look at the billboards and say, hey, you're never going to be as happy and as beautiful as those two women on that billboard drinking a a glass of wine. You're never going to be successful as this person that is driving a Maserati. Every single thing is designed to create an artificial vacuum in our sense of worthiness in order to be able to propagate this consumerist 
virus. And this is just one example, right, to illustrate like the connection between the health of the individual and the health of the culture. When we come to the environment, it's pretty obvious, right? We're not drinking water that is clean. It's very difficult to be healthy. But more often than not, because of the highly focused obsession on the individual as the only arena in which transformation and growth can happen, we tend to ignore that the individual is actually in constant dialogue with community, with society, with culture, with environment. And a big part of what I do through Healing from Healing is trying to actually not only visit entities that populate the life of people in the Amazon, and then other people came with a sword and with the Bible and said, from now on, all of that is void, all of that is invalid. And then you have to subscribe to these ideas of patriarchal spirituality with God in the sky that dictates how things should be. And Amazonian people were like, fuck that. <laughs> we like our version much better than yours. We don't want to subscribe to that. And then, of course, they were brutalized into submission, evangelized against their will through massive acts of violence. But what the church said in order to justify that violence was any rational person who comes across the word of God, who is shown the Bible, right? If they're rational and they're fully human, then they will subscribe to our ideas because that's the only rational thing to do, right? And they said, if you come across people who reject the word of God, the only meaningful response to that will be where then they're not fully human, right? They're animals. They are less than humans because they're not able to receive the gospel. They're not really to be evangelized as any other rational being would be because this is the absolute truth and it just requires, you know, a certain degree of humanity to be able to proceed. This is just another example to bring back the point that this idea of NPCs being so rampant, not only with conspiracy circles, not only with... New Age spirituality was spreading out more into the zeitgeist of internet culture is exactly one of the ways in which people in this era of post-truth and epistemic chaos and complete lack of compass in order to make sense of the world in a meaningful way, right, are very quick to say, you know what, your life experience is different than mine and hence you must be a non-playable character because you are led by an algorithm. You're not making your own choices. You're not thinking by yourselves because if you were thinking by yourself, then inevitably you would come up to the same conclusions that I have, me, a full human in this world. And if you don't do that, then that must mean that you're an NPC. So there's a twist here, if you have time for one more question. Yeah. For me, the twist is about the fact that you shared a lot of just utterly surreal clips from TikTok where people can be gifted these little food items and so on. They're like micro payments, essentially in the form of emoji that people can toss at someone doing a live stream. If you have, imagine a lot of people listening to the show already familiar with this phenomenon, but I, I avoided TikTok like the plague, weird pool of stuff that that I'm still able to maintain a kind of an ironic distance from in an anthropological or ethnographic sense. Anyway, it's your investigation about the way that not only are people responding to one another as NPCs out of this kind of failure to understand bounded rationality. Okay, let me just give you like a, a little quick side tour here into uh, a former colleague, Simon Dedeo at Carnegie Mellon, who has written about, and I interviewed him on Complexity Podcast a few years ago, 
about the way that people use different heuristics to determine what they believe is a satisfying explanatory framework. And some people want something parsimonious. They want the simplest possible explanation. They want the universe in an equation on a t-shirt. And then other yeah. people, these are conspiracy mindset is one in which on the other end of the spectrum, you, you have people that want an explanatory framework that answers all of these seemingly unconnected phenomena, right? This is actually, his science proceeds through major paradigmatic revolutions through consilience. It, people like James Clerk Maxwell recognize that elect electromagnetism is actually one thing instead of electricity and magnetism being two different phenomena. Right. But those people are in the sciences are held in check by people that are seeking the simplest viable explanation. And in a healthy sort of epistemic ecosystem is one in which both of these species are regularly interacting. If you have people that only abide by the simplest possible explanation, then they regard the, sci the scientific revolutionaries as kooks. And if you have the scientific revolutionary mindset refuses to anchor itself in, to ground itself in simpler explanations, then this is the argument you always hear between the conspiracy theorists and everyone else is, come on, like Occam's razor would have it that 9-11 was not an inside job because blah, it was just like blah. At any rate, the, the other side of this, this thing that you're describing is, again, that we don't just dehumanize other people, but we do actually live in a world in which due to, due to these structural situations. You look at the history of colonialism and there was a lot of people just accepting that they were going to be displaced and that they were going to have to adopt the culture of their invaders and so on as a strategy for survival. And but this is what I'm seeing in this phenomenon on TikTok where people are pretending to be NPCs that you can feed with these micropayment tokens because it's like but only fans. It's like they're accepting their own dehumanization as a strategy for making a living in the the apocalyptic boil of late capitalism. And this is, I just want to end this, this, this conversation with you with some reflections on the Psychedelic Science Conference, where you, know, you and I both attended this thing. And in part of what you're, this overall portrait and study that you're doing of the way that, that accelerationist capitalism commodifies and co-ops and appropriates things, and that I have been trying to make sense of my own inheritance as the son of a Universal Studios and Walt Disney employee of a career amusement park travel industry guy who really believed and I think earnestly felt as though the work that they were doing in these large entertainment media companies was providing people with meaningful stories and memorable experiences and that Disney is the happiest place on earth. And, and yet if you go to Disney, it's, there's just like parents fighting with their kids because they've saved up money all year to have a wonderful time. And the kids don't want to be there and everybody's hot and beer costs 10 bucks. And like, it's this, it's, it's bedlam. And something like that felt like it was going on for me at the MAPS conference where, thank God, so many of the friends that I met in the festival world 10 or 15 years ago have matured into people that are doing really important work to as peer support or integration counseling, yeah. or they're helping people with somatic therapy or they're help, they're, they have stepped up into this space as it has matured, as the weird has turned pro and and this underground 
has come above board and has been, you know, legalized or at least decriminalized. And so people can can operate publicly in this way within this space. But like you said, this, or like we were talking about a moment ago, the question of what we want or what we're willing to attempt is largely constrained, not only by our own will, by the non-negotiable variables of our environment. And struck me that suddenly I didn't want to be a part of this anymore. And maybe this is just like my hipster thing speaking out that it's yeah. like, oh, now that there's billions of dollars in this space, yeah. and like everybody wants a piece of it, then it's not a lot of the most interesting people I know in, in the psychedelic culture, like Eric Davis and, and Bruce Damer were, and Ken Adams were not there this year because they felt marginalized by the scene. And buddies like Shane Moss, who were central in the MAPS conference in previous years, no one inside the organization that they were speaking with knew who they were anymore. That it, like this thing had, had grown so rapidly that it was it was unnavigable on site. There were no maps at maps. And like people didn't know how to get around. People didn't know where to find the cultural offerings yeah. that were being made by like th thousands and thousands of hours of donated labor. And it just felt, oh God, what am I saying? That just it just struck me that this relates to like what I saw when the bastion of psychedelic journalism, Reality Sandwich, was co-opted by Delic Corporation. Yeah. Like as soon as there's as soon as there's money in the opportunity, and I'm not saying that this is true of everyone involved, because there are still a lot of it's like the CIA or something. It's like there are still a lot of good people caught up in the cogworks of this thing that yeah. are trying to do good work within the government, within the legal system within, but it's become this thing where we're all, we're in the belly of the Leviathan and we're yeah. forced to make compromises about the way that we express and the way that we relate. And I see this, this is a very cyberpunk theme, right? To keep circling around the matrix and the way that like in order to tangle with, in order to fight the machine, you have to become the machine again. So I'm like, I just, I don't know, you don't have to unpack that particular angle on it. But it's just, it's like watching all of the potential and the innocence of a child who then goes to school and gets bullied and realizes that they have to play the game in order to, to not be like punished by the school system. And you just watch this, this beautiful thing become like distorted and like loses something even as like we were all waiting and praying for this to happen. And now that it's happening, it's not fun anymore for yeah. a lot of the people I know. And so I don't know, like I, yeah, I'm just, and I feel that way about the maturation of, of the web and all of these technologies that, you know, folks like, again, to the Mondo 2000, Ken Goffman, Are You Serious? And Doug Rushkoff and Doug is really, uh, talks a lot about this, about how the world that they were all looking forward to in the 1990s is here, not, it, they don't want it anymore. Yeah. Like, okay, never mind. Like the back out. Yeah. This is not. We missed something about the way that these things have to come into being within yeah. a system in which everything is economically legible and therefore operable within a can be speculated on by financial instruments and so on. It's just ah, I'm I being someone who myself who found myself in a room with six other psychedelic podcaster Michaels at the Maps conference, and you've got this yeah. great meme set of the people you're going to run into at the conference. And there's that guy who's talking about ontology on his podcast and support him on Patreon and all this stuff. Yeah. It's, that's the other piece of this too, which is no matter how original I want to be, right? Like Neo, it's, oh, actually you're Neo number seven. 
like you're a demographic object, like you're a statistical phenomenon that can be predicted and, and manipulated and understood. And there's this thing going on right now around all of this about, oh yeah, you're priceless, original, unique snowflake, just like everyone else. That right. makes me wonder if my emotional response to this is in some way as substanceless and as the the way that in the 19th century people responded with visceral repulsion to evolutionary theory because they saw an attack on the ontology of the human as like a, a fixed category that some suddenly the, the floor had dropped out from under them and they were they weren't this like special divine protected class of being and so yeah it's now that we're in this brave new world is this kind of John Keats question about have we unwoven the rainbow and does that is that more magical that we have this deeper understanding and that we've expanded the horizon of mystery in, in new ways or have we lost something really precious that we can't regain or am I just am I just being a sort of neurotic Jew here yeah. like worrying about this stuff or should I just take the pill and embrace the the next layer of eschatological unfolding I don't know I'd love to hear your thoughts on no on man I, mean, I, I feel you I, I, I totally feel you I think there's definitely I mean, for me and I imagine from what you're sharing also for yourself I think there's definitely a part of it which is the appeal of the forbidden fruit yeah like I think there, there, there was a moment in time where psychedelics were still highly criminalized and they still are in some places right but it's not only about the criminalization of it. There was also like the social acceptance part of it. I think there was there was at least when I got into the scene in the early two thousands, right? This was something that was still very secretive, very taboo, very illegal. And I think that plays out with many of the things that we were talking about earlier, in the sense of that sense of ego inflation, because then you know it comes out also with a flavor of not only the forbidden truth, but also forbidden knowledge, right? Like I, I, I did shrooms, which is something that everybody else is afraid of. I don't want to tell my parents because I don't know what they're going to say. I had to hide it because then I got like this incredible insight. Hey, maybe all the anti-drug propaganda that I absorbed throughout all of my teenage years not only was bullshit, but actually I tapped here into a source of truth that is only available to those who are courageous enough to see through the bullshit. Right? Like, so it's not only the forbidden fruit part of it, which also, I think like just as human nature, like everything that is forbidden will always be more appealing in many ways, more tasty, right, in that sense. But also the part of it, I think there is a good reason why philosophical traditions and initiatory traditions always were veiled and available only to the initiates, right? Because there, there, there's a moment where you want to make sure that whoever has these experiences is mature enough and has the right structures to make sense of those experiences in a way that is beneficial for them and beneficial for their communities. So I think, like, like, my experience of doing mushrooms for the first time, doing LSD in a trans festival, like doing ayahuasca in a, in a shady apartment in north of Israel for the first time, it wasn't only about tapping, it wasn't only about the forbidden fruit and tapping into a forbidden source of knowledge and so on. And it was also about not really having any structure to those experiences, not really knowing how to make sense of them. Not only how integration can become the massive buzzword in all of the psychedelic scene, everybody integration, this integration, that. Oh, how do we make sure that people are integrating these experiences? Hey, that's just not going to happen precisely because we don't have the right structures. But go to the rainforest, drink ayahuasca, have these massive epiphanies and awakenings and so on and so forth. But two days after, they're again like sitting in traffic in LA and everything seems to evaporate in thin air because we can't really live up to the realizations or insights that we have during these experiences if we go back today 
life. Like it would necessitate that we actually create structures that are much more affable to be able to live in the ways that we are shown that life is all sorts of different things. But more to the point, forbidden fruit, forbidden knowledge. I think now we are in a point in time where not only these things are not taboo anymore and they're more socially accepted and there's actually more structures or make that a little bit less, a bit less, but also like the narratives change, like the stories that we tell about what these things are, have changed. Like one of the things that really worry me, that, I don't know if worry is the right word, but one of the things that really make me, I don't know what the word is, but example, right? I think that the hyper-focus on medicalization and psychologization of, of psychedelics is not an ideal thing at all. I think, I think I understand maps. Like maps always tell you the same story, like foot in the door policy. We're going to run, you know, MDMA through the scientific epistemics of validating this for PTSD, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is just provide a foot in the door so people can understand that psychedelics in general and drugs in general can have therapeutic value and normalize the use of drugs in a more wider sense and so on. But the strategy of hyper-medicalizing, hyper-therapizing, hyper-psychologizing experiences in many ways is also like very detrimental to the kinds of experiences and the range of experiences and the sense-making that people will do from these experiences, right? Again, like living in the rainforest in Peru for a long time, coming to understand what ayahuasca is and what ayahuasca can be. Not only that, but the massive central component of storytelling, right, of narrative in the potential outcome and then, you know, moving from that in the sense-making and meaning-making that people do from their experiences is crucial, right? It's crucial. But people come to the retreat already with a very crystallized experience of what ayahuasca is, right? Because they read that in the website of the Ayahuasca Retreat Center. They hear about that in conferences such as the one in MAPS. They hear in a podcast what is it that people orient towards when they ayahuasca when they do their ayahuasca experiences and nowadays and for a while already right like the main story that we have at psychedelics my brain my my friend Brian James has a good term for it he calls it trauma delic culture it's kind of like this alliance between trauma and psychedelics that have created this narrative that is very prominent and very central in modern days in which. The primary value and most important thing that you can do with psychedelics is to work on your trauma. So people come to the ayahuasca retreat and, you know, already from the website, already from the things that they heard before, from communications that they got through the email, from, you know, what the facilitators share, the way that the facilitators in the first few days of the retreat share, like, what are you here for? What is ayahuasca for? You're going to be working on your childhood trauma. And, you know, ayahuasca is particularly well suited to show to maybe help you remember things that you cannot have access to, this idea of recovered memories, which is an incredibly problematic thing, a debate that has ranged for decades in actual modern, in actual mainstream psychology about whether recovered memories are even a thing. Right? Like we have gone through satanic panics that were horrible social contagion instances that were based on the idea of recovered memories, right? That if you just use the right tools to tap into the subconscious that you will come up with things that you have repressed and suppressed that actually happen. This is like the, the bread and butter nowadays of ayahuasca work, right? Matian-based approach that has become very widespread in a lot of ayahuasca circles. It's like you drink ayahuasca because you want to tap into those repressed and suppressed memories or maybe things that are just not as salient or things that happened to you throughout childhood, right? I, I got into like really absurd situations during my time working there when 
like I would facilitate a retreat for a person, let's say you have five or seven ceremonies around the retreat. And that person would have experiences that are by any standards, like powerful, meaningful experiences, right? Like experiences that maybe transpersonal experiences, maybe experiences of psychic surgery, maybe experiences of like strong social connectedness to other people in their lives, like reconnecting in their experiences with a parent or a brother, like meaningful shit. And they would have a few of those experiences and they would be mind blown after the, the ceremony and like processing what those ceremonies were, <laughs> were they like. And then we come to the end of the workshop. We do the closing circle, right? And people are sharing what was the workshop like for them, what they got from the experience. And we come to that same person who just had a series of five mind-blowing experiences of epistemic reenchantment, of social connectedness, whatever it was their experience. But what they share during that circle is like, oh, like I'm disappointed because I didn't get what I came here to get. How can you be disappointed if you just share with me throughout the last week all these incredible, amazing life-altering experiences, they would be like, yeah, but I didn't tap into my childhood trauma. Like, I understood, I was under the impression that I came here to work on my childhood trauma because I'm under the impression that my childhood trauma is the only source of all of my adult dysfunctions. And I really need to tap into that childhood trauma in order to be able to be a better person because my depression, my anxiety, my impatience, everything that is wrong with me in the present day is traceable back to my childhood experiences and that ayahuasca would help me do that. And it didn't. So I had all of these incredible experiences, right? Like this range of metaphysical, transpersonal, social experiences. And I'm disappointed because I didn't tap into my childhood trauma. So I think there's a whole generation of people that didn't grow up like you and I did. I don't know exactly what your origin story is, right? But I imagine something similar, right? I first did my psychedelics in trans festivals, in nature with my friends, in a context where I didn't really have a particular narrative in mind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. It was just like an open-ended exploratory curiosity, recreational, right? Like the way that we demonize the recreational nowadays is insane to me, right? There's a whole generation of modern trauma-based psychonauts, right? That would be like, like psychedelics are only for healing, right? If you're doing psychedelics in a festival, if you're doing psychedelics, listening to music, if you're doing psychedelics for fun, you're using them wrong. Like the absurdity of such a statement that you're using them wrong is but, so mind-blowing. so sad. You have to enforce that though, whether you believe yeah. it or not, because you can't be seen as somehow breaking the covenant that you've made with the regulatory framework in which you're allowed to work as a right. therapist. Exactly. And, and it's surreal. Yeah. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, I think that's the thing that is really discouraging to me is that I think one of one of the greatest strengths of neoliberal neoliberalism in general, I think, always has been to be able to absorb every potentially revolutionary or disruptive thing in the world, whether it's a technology or an ideology, and absorb it to sanitize it and then using for its own purposes. And sadly, as a bottom line, I think what you're feeling, what I'm feeling, what a lot of people are feeling is that psychedelics have become from a potentially civilization-changing, revolutionary, subversive tool that can steer humanity in a different direction. There was the hope that we had when we understood the magnitude of the transformation 
both individual but also collective that psychedelics can and then seeing them embedded within the structures they are today and saying you know what psychedelics have been detoothed, declawed, sanitized and completely subservient to power and that's a shame yeah when you have something so powerful now that has been rendered completely subservient to power completely monetized hygienized and commodified yeah i don't think that's the only thing that's gonna i think people are still gonna party people are still gonna do drugs in the forest and go to festivals and have incredible experiences with their friends and explore their sexuality and expanded states of awareness but i think we do need to to some extent maybe steward forward i call it like the you know like the revival of the recreational or like the the reawakening the the recreational in that sense which i think is going to be very important that we actually are able to tap into the whole range of incredible things that psychedelics can be and plant medicines can be good for as opposed to like just a very narrow hyper therapized hyper psychologized medicalized perspective of it which useful but that's not it at least that's not the whole of it thanks man okay just parting i'm curious to know where else your attention is right now obviously this thing is an extraordinary public good your instagram account but it also exists on someone else's platform and the way that we're watching things happen with twitter and all this like there's no guarantee in an age of chronic displacement and the, the ground falling out from below us that this is going to persist in any way outside of the internet archive so what else you've got a kid so there's that where else do you see this work taking you or what else has your attention right now or does this thing become a coffee table book at some point because i would buy it yeah what where else is what else has your attention and and what else are you working on and and where where do you want to direct us yeah so right right now i'm very limited in scope because i'm in the last stages of finishing my actual doctoral dissertation which is like birthing a baby in itself. So I have a pretty much until February or January that I'm going to be preoccupied with that. Everything else is some distraction. Okay? Even the Instagram account I'm using to procrastinate in the things that I should really be doing, which is finishing my PhD. Between the Instagram account and writing a PhD and raising a toddler, <laughs> I imagine you, you can relate, is already three, almost three full-time jobs. And I have also my private practice working with people. I also work for a retreat center here in Mexico where I'm the director of therapeutics and integration. I work with maybe 14, 15 people a week and lead group activities. Depending on how much time I have, I will do, you know, teach classes, do workshops. I do try as much as I can to keep in touch with the actual working with people. I think that's always been the thing that allows me to keep sane. I don't want to I don't want to give that up. I do try to make space as much as I can to either working with people one on one or teaching classes, leading group activities. Like I like being in daily well not daily, but I would say at least a few days every month like actually being in contact with groups with people and like working with these things is always the thing that allows me to keep grounded and more importantly to keep my cynicism in check. I think healing from healing by itself would be very easy for me to just go full in into the cynicism and criticism and skepticism, which is maybe one of my natural tendencies. But actually, like I do have my work in the transformation healing space that also allows me to be periodically reminded that actually, you know, things are powerful and people do benefit. And as much shit we want to talk and as much there is room for improvement and as much as we definitely need better stories for orienting this work, 
you know, like people do have massive experiences of healing, of transformation. It's it's a positive, it's a net positive thing, 100%. Those are the things that I, between that, writing a thesis, Instagram and family, that's what at the moment, but yeah, thinking about midterm, long-term, definitely a book is on the works. I already, I'm in touch with a couple of different agents. That's definitely going to happen. I'm not quite sure yet what's going to be the difference between the phd and the like more popular book i think it's probably gonna be a little bit of a my dissertation is actually like my field is medical anthropology and communications and from the get-go my idea was always with a blessing from my supervisors was always to to write an ethnography that is for popular consumption yeah like i never felt called to write like very technical jargon only for people in the ivory towers but like my idea from the very beginning was to make something that is enjoyable, amenable, something that can be read by any person. And that's what it's going to be. So imagine like book deal will follow from that, perhaps taking some parts of it and perhaps also like making it a little bit more visual, not only with the, with the text and the ethnographic account, but also maybe with memes and a little bit more of a journey through these ideas, through multimedia approach. Yeah. Awesome. Any final thoughts you want to slap on us no matter how non sequitur no man i think thank you for having me I, I i appreciate that more people are wanting to have these conversations i i know some of these things can be triggering and some of these things can be confrontational some of these things can i don't know i think it's important i think like one of the things that i do try to communicate relatively often in my page and this is important to remind myself and other people is like by the end of the day this is my culture. This is my tribe, right? Like I, I, even though I try sometimes separate myself, new age culture, new age spirituality, conspiracy thing. But at the end of the day, like when I think about the complex of ideas, the complex of orientations, the people that are part of these environments, like this is more or less my extended tribe, both virtual but also presential. So. It's never been about destroying something, but about making something better. It's like more of a labor of love, like trying to find creative ways to, and for me, that's humor as a main vehicle, but like using humor in other creative ways to bring people's attention to parts of our cultures and subcultures that I feel are lacking, can be better. The main thing still remains something probably you can relate to a lot from your own perspective and orientation. Like we need better stories. We need better narratives. We need a new mythology that can orient people in a new way to the ones that we have right now, which are very reductive, consumerist based. And yeah, just not ideal for really bringing out the potential, the real potential that these tools, technologies and ideas can have. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Future Fossils is a listener-supported podcast. If you like it, please double down. Rate, review, subscribe. Propose yourself as a sponsor. Stay tuned for the return of patron community calls coming soon. And have a most wonderful eon. <laughs>